Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey, and today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a wrap-up of the recent Albany Common Council meeting by Moses Nagel. Then we have Willie Terry's coverage of the grand opening of the South End Grocery. Later on, Marsha Lazarus reached out to children at the well who spoke about their youth storytelling project. After that, Amy Halloran talks bread with the co-owner of Elmore Mountain Bread. Finally, we end with a look back at December's Toys for Tots events where Willie Terry was on the ground to report and speak to Jerry Deskovic. But first, here are the headlines, and unfortunately, H. Bosch Jr. could not be with us today, but just a shout out, hello. So the headlines, the Times Union reports that Schenectady City Council President Marianne Porterfield, an African-American, said that she plans to seek the backing of the City Democratic Party over the weekend before deciding if she'll run against the three-term incumbent, Mayor Gary McCarthy, who is white, in a primary battle. Matt Nelligan is expected to be the GOP mayoral candidate. The federal government last May sold the former NL Industries munitions factory site in Colony for over $2 million, though the buyer was not disclosed. The 11-acre parcel was a federal Superfund site due to the presence of radioactive contamination. A State Department of Health study of the health impacts of workers and neighbors on the plant found that 94% of workers and 8% of residents had detectable amounts of depleted uranium in their bodies. The Gazette reports that the town of Niskayuna is proceeding with its plans to acquire the 105-acre Mohawk River State Park. The state had told the town that the municipality could respond more nimbly to any issues with the public park, including responding to anyone injured in the park. The town is working with local groups to plan to improve the trails in the park. Former Republican Rensselaer County Elections Commissioner Jason Schofield pleaded guilty on Wednesday to 12 counts of unlawfully using the names and dates of and of birth, using the names and dates of birth of voters to fraudulently apply for absentee ballots for elections held in Rensselaer County in 2021. While Schofield faces up to five years in prison, his sentence is expected to be less since he is cooperating with federal officials in the ongoing investigation. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Our first story is on the Albany Common Council, which met for the first time in 2023 on January 5th. Moses Nagel has a wrap-up of the most discussed issues. The Albany Common Council held their first meeting of the year on January 5th. 
The issue that raised the most discussion was an amendment to the Sustainable Development Ordinance, which aims to increase the amount of affordable housing in Albany. Councilmember Bellerin, who introduced the original ordinance, began by proposing an amendment. Some of the concerns that was brought up was possibly uh, increasing the area medium income from 50% to 60%. So I did do some research on it and I find that to be a friendly amendment. So I'd like to be able to make that amendment today and then vote on it on January 19th meeting. President Pro Tem Kelly Kimbrough had the first response. The purpose in a lot of the discussion that we had was trying to make sure that individuals who are working in the workforce, who are supporting their families, can find a affordable place to live. The legislation itself that is being proposed, while Councilman Ballard said this is the first step, it's one of these first steps that allows the flexibility for us to address different income barriers while dealing with different projects from neighborhood to neighborhood. And while we want to encourage and support and advocate for additional affordable units in these developments, the planning side of things is trying to keep things flexible to allow for more development to happen, but happen organically where we're not having to have these tough conversations with certain developers to bend their arms to get them to address the public housing issue, but instead allow them to develop and incorporate that affordable housing because they see the market, they understand the population that they're dealing with in the community that they're looking to build with and allow them um, to do just that. And so again, I'm hoping that the rest of the council can support this legislation, but as we continue to look at more studies and look at more information to make sure that in the future and moving forward that we're taking account into the next two, three, four steps to actually make affordable housing and inclusionary zoning beneficial to all parties. Thomas Hoey from Ward 15 responded. I'm on the committee also, and it was a close vote. We had three out of five uh, vote to pass this out of committee. And, you know, I wanted to see the 15%. I also wanted to see units of 100 and more provide more housing than the 13%. But when we legislate and we, we see it on the national level, we got to be able to have some give and take. And uh, I think this bill and is a good one. But for the rest of the council, some of the stuff that came out is affordable housing in Albany is $925 a month for a studio. And, you know, you think about that, that's $12,000 a year. And how many people don't make that and can't afford to live in this city? So I think we need, as a legislature, we need to be able to get something through. And like I said during the committee meeting, we can always adjust this, you know, as time goes on and we look at things. Now, one of the things that came out during the meeting that has me kind of riled up is that we had the head of Capitalize Albany say that they don't negotiate with the uh, developers. So it has me worried that somebody representing the city of Albany is not twisting the arms of these developers to make sure that we have the housing. Now, there was a developer from uh, Rochester, I believe, I forgot his name, he was talking about the percentage of affordable housing that's vacant. 
And it's, it's something less than 2%. So every piece of affordable housing right now in Albany is, is rented. So we do have a, a shortage. We need to do something about it. And we, we got a tough situation here. And this bill most likely will be vetoed. And we're going to probably have to override it if we really want to see affordable housing in Albany. Hate to be like that, but that's, that's what the facts are. We have a lot of people pushing back. Uh, the chief of staff of the mayor's office sent us all out a thing showing that, oh, because if we pass this bill, there'll be less development. But there's less development now. I think we need to try this out. If it turns out that it's hurting development, then we can relook at it. Councilmember Romero also made a statement. I think if we were to hear from the tenants, if we were to hear from the lawyers that are doing uh, this type of work for economic development that are not capitalized Albany, that we would hear that there is actually development going on in our city. Like when you look around downtown Albany, what is that massive new one in Huckman Warehouse? What is all of those new luxury apartments happening in downtown Albany? No offense. It's like we have tons of new apartments that are coming in. So for people to say like, oh, this is going to deter development. Didn't we, did we not actually hear that exact same argument last time we put in inclusionary zoning? And haven't we seen multiple new apartment buildings be created? So I just want my position to be clear that if we're going to, as a body, address the housing crisis and if we're going to address redlining and if we're going to um, actually create deeply affordable housing, that we would need a larger percentage of set-asides. Councilmember Anani. Sometimes, as legislators, some people are okay with, like, incremental changes. Some people want systemic changes. What the time calls for in the city of Albany is more systemic changes. With that said, I think, just getting the temperature of this council, I think we could go further on this uh, legislation. Housing is a human right. There are so many issues that face our city, and some of it, the root is lack of affordable housing. We cannot stop crime in the city if people don't have a place to live. So as it relates to this legislation, it's a, a living, breathing document. And if we pass this today, we could amend it next month. You know, But I think that sometimes we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But I think as a council, we really need to be intentional about helping poor people in our city. We need a poor people's agenda when we're legislating. Uh, there are so many people who are suffering in silence, and I think that legislations like this create a sense of hope, a sense that the council is looking out for poor people in our city. This is a tough one, I, and if it comes to the floor, I will definitely support it, but if we could go a little bit further, uh, particularly where you know, the 18% set aside, the, 20 unit minimum and also the AMI being more than 60%, that will be us actually meeting the moment that is needed. In closing, Mr. Bellerin responded to the comments from the other council members. I hear everybody's concerns, okay? And as someone that's been working on this for two years, I have been very considerate to everybody's concerns over the last two years. I was told this was too time-consuming, so it would have to wait for the new council. So as a respectful younger council member to my senior council members that were retiring at the end of the term, I bit my tongue and let it bleed on this issue. One more time. So come January, new council, 
new leadership, I asked specifically to be sure of the planning committee so that I can make sure this got on the agenda and got heard. We presented it in January. We've had a lot of conversation on this. We've had a lot of good conversation. No, this is not the number I wanted. I wanted 15. Everybody knows I wanted 15. But to be able to counter the economic argument that was going to be put forward, which is going to be put forward, let's just be honest. This is going to get vetoed. Administration has made it clear that they do not agree with my numbers. But at some point, after you have all these conversations, it's time for democracy to do what it has to do. I do believe it deserves a vote. I have not told anyone that they could not come and speak. From day one, I said developers are welcome. From day one, I've said anyone that wants to speak and be a part of this is welcome. And I have accepted all those concerns, and I have changed the bill to address those concerns as best as possible. We're talking about we had more than doubling our current number. Our current number is 5%. So if you look at the project that's being discussed on Broadway, that beautiful building that's not that beautiful, that everybody knows, that just got $10 million, that they're talking about 100 units. With today's policy, only five of those units would be affordable. With this bill, 13. That's significant change. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. And stay tuned. Stay tuned into this program for future Common Council meetings. The South End Grocery had its grand opening on December 27, 2022, and Hudson Mohawk Magazine roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry was there in attendance. The South End Grocery is owned by the African American Cultural Center. It's the first charity controlled grocery to provide uh, equitable access to healthy produce and groceries to the downtown South Pearl neighborhood. Yeah, this is Willie Terry, your Roman labor correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk Network, and I'm here at the South End, South End Grocery. They just opened up today. And I'm here with the uh, owner, and his name is Trayvon Jackson. And how you doing, Trayvon? I'm doing well, brother. Good to see you. And he also have another part owner that's next to him. And your name is? Huh? You say Aslan? He said, give me the mic. Yeah. <laughs> so, Trayvon, just tell me a, a little bit about this. How, how did you get started, and you know, how did the idea come about, and what do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, it started with me being right across the street at the African American Cultural Center, getting McGriddles and coffees from McDonald's every day. When they closed, myself and the neighborhood were very clear about what they wanted. And when the residents said a grocery, I felt it was my duty to stand up and put resources and effort behind it. And today, we've conquered the hurdle of whether or not it's possible because we've done it and the desert is over. Now, I know you. Uh they said that there's not a supermarket nearby here. Right. Right. But it was some, right? And yeah, a while ago. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. So, um, so how how are people taking this? Very well. A lot of excitement, uh, a lot of thanks and appreciation, a lot of joy. 
Um, it's something that people didn't think they would see, and yet they are, and they're part of it. And this is definitely something that is needed in the community. Oh, for certain. I mean, healthy produce, veggies, fruits, granola, oats, grains, the things to sustain life are essential. Now, what was some of the uh, field work that you had to go through to get this done? Well, a lot of relationship building, a lot of partnership building and team building, specifically among other nonprofit organizations. Blue Light leads a coalition of over 75 individual organizations and professionals in the Capital Region who all partnered together to assist this project. And that means taking meetings, that means building a rapport, breaking bread, making friends, or deciding not to where necessary. And all of that got us to today. T tell me something about the uh, inner workings of the uh, market. Well, the inner workings, I would say, number one, we have a very competitive kitchen. <laughs> and I would say, number two, we have a very clean, focused team. Uh, someone will clean behind someone else. <laughs> Duplicating the work aside, it's just prefer to be clean. And I appreciate those qualities. Right. And I know you have a lot of fruit and vegetables here. And sort of like a restaurant, almost. But there's no sit-down right now, right? No, not right now. Yeah, we have a lot of bodegas in our neighborhood. Yes, we know, do. Different souls, and uh, they just there, you know, selling stuff. Yeah. So tell me, what would be the difference of this market than the bodegas? Right. Well, I mean, number one is the accessibility. So what's available? Fresh produce, veggies, healthy, healthy granolas, food, fruits. Number two, and perhaps more importantly, is price. We are a charity. We're a nonprofit. We coordinate donations, and we use that to reduce the cost to people who need it. So you're not going to see any extravagant prices in here. You know, I'd argue we match or beat Walmart on anything that we sell, and we're much smaller than that. And I noticed on the walls that you have a lot of artwork. Tell me something about that. that yes, I mean it was it was key for us to infuse the space with the life and culture of the people it was for from a very early stage. And these walls were one of the first things that we did to make sure our energy could live correctly in the space, to make sure our spirits were aligned with what energy was in the building. And it was a beautiful marriage of art and our culture. So it has some, you have some relationship with the museum? Absolutely. Um, our art was inspired and conducted by our artists in residence from the Cultural Center. And the Cultural Center does own both properties. I make sure of that and that they are maintained. Um, and that's key because not only do I support philanthropically and endow funds, but I'm doing it on behalf of a black organization that represents all of us. And that statement is much more profound. Right. And you're still the director. Yes, I'm the full-time volunteer executive director. I've been donating my services in that position for about five or six years now, and I'm proud that my son gets right. to see it. Right. So you have, you have hot food here, too? Yes, we have hot foods, uh, dinners and meals, um, and foods by order um, coming out of our kitchen. That's so that people can get a hot meal, right, as well as a crisis meal if they need it, something that'll stick to the bones. And it also allows us to diversify. Typically, any supermarket you go through, you can also get a hot plate of food. And we wanted to make sure we could offer that. Now, for people who don't know how, where it's located, give them information how to get here and your time that you open. Yes, so we're at 106 South Pearl, the former McDonald's, right down the street from the MVP Arena, formerly the Times Union Center, when you get off the downtown exit from the highway. Uh, it's hard to miss us, but if you do, just look for the red, black, and green flag. And your albums? We are open 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. to start. And after filling another couple shifts, we'll be open 8 a.m. to 8 p.m.
And let's say if someone wants to get involved with your uh, marketing, want to do some volunteer work or whatever. Yeah, certainly. If you reach out on our social media or our website, any of those things, you can reach out to team members directly. We're happy to welcome volunteers as well as people seeking employment. All right, Trayvon, I want to thank you for this to start the interview, and I'm sure we're going to be talking in the future. We always do. I appreciate you, brother. All right, brother. Peace. Thank you. Peace. Yes, yeah, Willie Terry. I'm still here at the uh, market. Yes. Uh, located on Pearl, 106 South Pearl, it just opened. And I have as my guest uh, one of the uh, representatives in Albany, in the county legislator, Mert Simpson. And how you doing, Mert? I'm doing very well today. This is a good day, opening a, a, a green space in a, a much needed community, long overdue. So Mert, give me your thoughts on this project here and why it's important for this community. Well, it's vital. I mean, this, this just so happened to be one of the worst McDonald's that I've ever seen. But notwithstanding that, we need green, fresh food in our communities. Most of the urban areas in Albany and throughout the country are food deserts. And so this is really a, literally an oasis you know, in the desert. We have fresh produce you know, grown by local farmers and servicing a, a community that's long in need. So this is this is a, a good start. It's a good way to bring the new year in. So but you think it's uh, something that might catch on in other communities? Oh yeah, yeah, well, you know, there are a lot of, you know, uh, independent plots and a lot of people trying to do urban farming, but it needs to be, you know, promoted on a much higher level. What and so, it seems like there's a lot of people have been coming in and out of here. Yes, yes. Right? So it seems like something that's long, o- long overdue. People have been coming from all over the capital, and certainly from all over the city here, because, it, again, it's much needed. And It's interesting, because I, I eat, like, cucumbers, tomatoes, and avocado every day. Well, I'm happier to give my money here than I am to some kind of corporate franchise. Right. That was the other question I was going to ask you. Do you think that how would this... Uh, to compete with those people will support this because number one it's accessible but number two it has the food that people need to grow and so this this is a godsend like I say long overdue and do you think there are more uh, establishments that need to be brought in this community well right now we have a a pharmacy desert too you know uh, Walgreens brought out Rite Aid and both of them have shriveled up the 153 Central Avenue CVS is closing and so in a lot of our urban community in Albany, we don't have pharmacies anymore. And that's a real problem, too. And we got the, uh, in this community, I see you got the MVP arena. And there's some major, you know, things down yeah. here. And why aren't this well, community? Well, so, here's the thing. Albany is so small that right in the, the urban community, the so-called ghetto, you walk one block and you're in the, the capital of the city. You're in the financial district. You're in the theater district. All in the difference in one block. So, I mean, small is good, but again, everything is together. And again, you know, I laugh when people complain about the rents here in Albany. And I look back, I was just telling somebody that the, the place I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, near Prospect Park, if anybody knows Brooklyn, was beautiful between 64 and 68. We had 13 rooms, and I grew up with my aunts and uncles. And the, the landlord, uh, I guess around 68, set the 13-room 13 apart, 13 apartment on fire. Cut them in half units. The half units go for $1.5 million a day. $6,000 a month. I don't know no millionaires in New York City, so I don't know what happened to the people who used to live there. Right. It's getting kind of expensive living in New York. Well, any urban area in this country is expensive. Right. 
and, and I noticed here, uh, Murray, you know, when you came in, a, you know, this is an old McDonald's, and they, yeah. they got a lot of good parking for people to come. They down. do. It's very accessible, and that's one of that's what makes this such a, a ideal spot. It's a, it's a high concentration of people with a great need. It's very accessible. Like during the pandemic, Lincoln Pharmacy was servicing a large number. People were coming from all over the state to Albany to get the vaccine. You know. All right. Thanks, Merck. All right. Put My pleasure. Yeah. All right. Very good. It's Merck Simpson, the uh, Albany County, Albany County, County, District County Legislator District 2. That was Willie Terry's coverage from the grand opening of the South End Grocery, and we will be bringing more coverage from there. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey, and you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOSLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, telling sharing is caring. And if you let more people know what the work that we're doing, that is a really great way to support us. You can find today's stories and more stories at mediasanctuary.org. Children at the Well is a Schenectady-based youth storytelling program that promotes peace and understanding. Co-founder Paula Weiss spoke with Marsha Lazarus about how it all got started and how it accomplishes its big vision. Storytelling is a very valuable way to bridge divides. It's so much better than debate or just learning about others. It's walking in each other's shoes and seeing what it's like. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus, and it's great to be here today with Paula Weiss. Paula co-founded a program called Children at the Well, Youth Storytellers for Peace and Understanding, over 17 years ago. So, Paula, how did Children of the Well get started? The two programs within the organization are Children at the Well and the Interfaith Story Circle. The Interfaith Story Circle was started in 1993 by Gert Johnson. And when my daughter, Ada, was 11, Ada got involved in the Interfaith Story Circle, and she just loved it. She loved telling stories from her Jewish faith at, that she had learned in, in Sunday school. And um, they loved it. They loved having an 11-year-old part of their circle. But there were no other kids involved for several years. And when a suggestion came along from one of the members that the National Storytelling Network was holding a, um, a contest, a grant contest for $5,000 for a program that could cause transformation within a community. She brought that to the group and uh, Gert had wanted to do a youth program for years. So I said, if you've got the ideas, I'll help you write it up. And that's how I became involved. And we did. We wrote a proposal for something like Children at the Well is now. And um, we won. It was a national contest. It was great. Paula, I saw something on your website about the organization's goal of increasing capacity for intercultural understanding and building 
diverse community connections. Can you talk about how Children at the Well accomplishes that or strives towards that? Sure. Well, we first of all, we always gather a diverse group of kids, different religions, try for different walks of life, as much diversity as we can. And we don't highlight that diversity in the group, but we have each participant figure out what stories speak to them, what they want to use to explain who they are, what is important to them. So they're drawing from their tradition, their cultural heritage, their own family, their lives, whatever it is, um, to come up with a story, be it a folk tale, fairy tale, personal tale, to share with the others. So by hearing the stories of others, other kids in the group, and also hearing stories of professional storytellers that will often show them examples of and that sort of thing, broadening their horizons and developing empathy by list, by traveling in other people's shoes and hearing how other people experience reality. It's creating a community and the, the, the two professional uh, teaching artists that, that lead the group are very careful to create a community consciously, um, establishing some set rules, establishing safety, confidentiality, that sort of thing. And there is a very important um, teaching component that is responding to learning with only positive responses to draw out what's best and not being critical so it and requiring that all participants do the same for each other so that it creates a community where people really can grow their confidence and so in this nice safe community they are hearing the stories of others and and developing empathy and beyond that, we try to draw in parents in different ways, and we have potlucks and picnics and things like that. So people actually get to know each other. And I have made friends with you know people in the interfaith story circle over those years. They're still my dear friends. And we've reached out to each other for so many different things. And uh, my community is more beautiful because of it. It's unusual in our society, it's so much more common that we cluster within our own groups. Paula, how does the organization or how do you reach out to bring in children from different communities? And, you know, specifically, where do you go or who do you reach out to? Well, at first we were um, reaching out to teachers of religion. We started with a workshop for teachers of religion using story in the teaching of religion. That was way back, um, and Gert led those kinds of workshops. And then we asked those teachers to recommend some kids for us. And so then, you know, following years, we were reaching out to teachers. We found that worked really well. Teachers tend to know the kids very well, and they can explain it with the families and all, and that helped. It's an ongoing issue for us. We are an independent program. We're not attached to a school or a church or anything like that. And um, for a couple of years, we worked with Schenectady Clergy Against Hate. And so we've been kind of focused in the Schenectady area for a while and using space at the Muslim Community Center. And so we were reaching out to the Schenectady schools, the Niskayunas schools, the private, some private schools in the area, like the Anwar Islamic School and um, synagogues and mosque and uh, uh, Hindu temple of Schenectady. We're thinking that's a, it's an enormous effort. 
And we have now an, a beautiful group of about 17 kids, I think, but we are um, thinking about moving to a different model of going where the kids are. For example? Well, we have toyed with the idea of developing an after-school program and offering it to a school system. Uh, recently, we came across the Connect Center in Cohose, and so we're, we're going to do some exploring about if it might work there, that sort of thing. So the, a neighborhood community center where kids are going after school, anyway, that's where the kids are. Maybe more so in adults, differences sometimes can be threatening and not comfortable. Do children respond differently to stories of different faiths and traditions? Do you, would you say children are more comfortable with differences? And how do they respond when they hear stories that are very different from what they're familiar with? It's hard to, it's hard to generalize, but I can say that within this kind of protected space, that the um, story coaches set up and maintain for the group. There's so much respect and real openness to learning. Yeah, it's beautiful. Can you share us an example, perhaps, of a young person that maybe seemed to get a lot out of the experience and, and grew in a certain way? Or Yeah, there have been so many examples over the years. It's really hard to to tell you about them all, of course, but uh, just one came to mind um, from this last group at early 2022. Um, we had two participants, just about the same age. One was from a private school, a religious school, and the other public school student who asked us to use they, them pronouns for that participant. And the first one uh, from the private school had been, was really taken aback by this idea. And she told me she didn't, she told the group she didn't, she didn't like it, she didn't get it. And <laughs> I wasn't sure how we were gonna handle this, but I, I talked with um, a wonderful friend of ours who is a storyteller and a therapist, and she uses story in working with some very troubled young people. And um, so I had a couple of sessions talking with Lonnie Peterson, and uh, she guided me. And I ended up talking with um, the student who wasn't getting it a couple of times and explained why we need to respect this in a community such as ours, and why this was being asked by the other participant. And then the week after, that girl was listening to this other participant tell the story that they called coming out, coming out to their family. And do you know that after the story was done, the reaction that this girl gave was, I think your story was so brave and good for you for telling it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Talk about opening her heart and her mind. Really. And I understand you have a really interesting event coming up on Sunday, February 5th at 6 p.m. Can you tell us about it? 
thanks. It's called Winter Lights, and uh, the name comes from a performance that the Interfaith Story Circle used to do in the winter. And now we've changed it into sort of a fundraiser in support of Children at the Well. And we're being hosted by Congregation Gates of Heaven in Schenectady. Six o'clock, February 5th, Sunday night, we're going to have a vegetarian buffet. We're going to have a few stories from staff and participants of Children at the Well and even some Bollywood dancing. And tickets are available on childrenatthewell.org and hope you'll come and join us. That was Marsha Lazarus speaking with Paula Weiss, the co-founder of Children at the Well. Next, we head into our archive vault for a story by Amy Halloran from, from 2019. This is part of her food diary series. And in this story, she spoke with Elmore Mountain Bread. Hi, this is Amy Halloran, and I'm here with another food diary talking with my friend and baker, Blair Marvin of Elmore Mountain Bread. Blair, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, Amy. Nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so happy for you to share a little bit about your work. Blair, you're up. Elmore Mountain is in Vermont. And can you describe a little bit about the way that you and Andrew bake and um, the bread that you make? Yeah, sure. Um, so we are essentially a husband and wife team, um, and we're reaching, I think, what is our 15-year uh, anniversary of running the bakery. Um, and we bake wood-fired breads um, with 100% fresh milled flour that we um, mill here on site. Um, and we uh, work that we purchase um, all of our grain, and we work with uh, farmers in our state and in our county here um, in Vermont to purchase grain directly from them for all of our breads. So that's totally local. Um, that's uh, yes. really <laughs> local. Yep, very much so. That's great. Um, a lot of times when people think of your brewer or your baker, you don't think that backwards to all the ingredients in that. And sometimes the ingredients in your beer and your bread might only be local water. Everything else might be coming from very far away. What do you like about these, the characteristics of working with local grain and local flour, fresh flour? Um, right, oh, such a, so many things. Um, probably my favorite, the, 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 the part that is most exciting to me and stands out the most to me um, about this whole project of connecting, of working with the local farms and local grains is the connection, the direct connection with the farmer. Um, and what it does is it allows us to work with them to talk about our needs as bakers, um, what we're interested in for grains, um, what works well for our breads, what works well for them in their particular <laughs> growing little micro growing regions here in Vermont and um, creating a dialogue that is mutually beneficial for both us as a baker, um, as bakers and for the farmers. And what that dialogue does for us is gives us um, a positive relationship and a positive story and a positive, um, what, am I, what am I thinking here, a really amazing story to communicate to our customers and to help them to translate that story over to our customers to break, give them connection 
um, with the food that they're eating. Um, I think that a lot of people um, in the who consume bread have lost touch with what what it is they're eating and where their grain is coming from, and that it you know can come from a farm right down the road, and that by supporting these bakers that are using by supporting bakers that are using local grains that we are um able to um create this story in these relationships and and it when we say story sometimes branding can seem really lofty but the story and the relationships have the practical effect of people earning a living and land staying uh in farmland um so it's it's really incredible. You can create a bridge to the land that people can eat three times a day. <laughs> yes, that is our goal. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And it's, and it's really, um, it, it, in our modern um, climate with farming and food interests, it's, I think that people are looking for um, transparency and for that connection. And, so, and that was something that I was looking for, too. Um, as I was growing as a baker, my I was buying roller milled flour off the truck by the pallet, and um, was using fermentation to bake breads that had a lot of flavor. And you know, um, we're using sourdough, so there was a lot of nutrition there through my baking process and fermentation. But what I wanted to be able to do was um, to be able to make even better bread with more flavor, more aroma, more nutrition. And um, by forging this, by forming these relationships and being able to mill it all here, um, it was, it allowed me to kind of move forward with that. Right. There's, there's not a lot of room for the customer to understand that the loaf of bread is very novel flour that you guys have milled on your own mill and that the the grain came from down the road. Um, what do you do to try to help people understand the differences between your bread, which also is in a supermarket, and the breads next to it that are that are don't are not representative of any kind of connections to Vermont and to other farmers? Um, what do I do? Well, I. <laughs> I have a lovely blurb on the back of my bag that a lovely writer I know <laughs> uh, put, wrote for me. Um, so kind of the cereal box, of, box effect. Um, and what I am trying to achieve with that is as people are cutting their bread on the counter, they can read the story about ourselves and the farmers in the milling and understand um, what it is they're eating um, and focus on the flavor and to be able to explain to them the, uh, the importance of um, of working with of of working with the local farmers and um, using the fresh milled flour, um, I also still keep our, our I keep our bakery really small. You know, we bake about fifteen hundred loaves of bread a, a week, and I see the whole process through from start to finish myself, including doing the deliveries. And we're really really lucky here in Vermont that people have this really amazing. Um, hunger for information about what they're eating and to be able to form those connections and so i also do all of my own deliveries and what that does is it allows me every day to go and 
engage with the customers. And if they will listen, I will talk to them. <laughs> and I, um, you know, use that opportunity every day um, to, to share that story and, and to, to let people know. We also have the logos um, and the story of all the farmers that we work with on the bags of the bread, um, kind of telling that story as well, um, to kind of co-brand and to put the put these farms out. Like a lot of our farmers are, um, diver- are have a lot of um, diversification on their farms, so they're they're working in dairy or some um, another grain farmer also has um, a business with um, growing beautiful heirloom organic dry beans, and they kind of so they have a lot of different things on the farm. Um, and so I also try and help promote them um, through um, packaging and, and um, putting their logos and their story on everything. There is a really strong food network in Vermont. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, we're very lucky. <laughs> right. This has been Amy Halloran with another Food Diary on WOOC. That story by Amy Halloran is from 2019. And to learn more about Elmore Mountain Bread, that's their website, elmoremountainbread.com, Elmore, E-L-M-O-R-E. And if you've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine this past week, you've heard Willie Terry's coverage of the Toys for Tots Toy Pickup Day, which took place on December 17th, 2022. In this final segment, Willie interviews the contributor. Uh, some of the contributors to the event, Jerry Deskovic, the founder and president of Deskovic Foundation for Justice, about his organization and involvement with the event. You may have heard him on a Triple E segment on the show. Willie Terry, your Roman labor correspondent, uh, still here at Col- on Colvin Avenue at the uh, Christmas party for kids, where they're giving out gifts to kids. And I have one of the partners of this event, and then his name is uh, Jeffrey Dokovic. Deskovic. Deskovic. How you doing? I'm good. So I'm with the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, a nonprofit organization um, that works to free wrongfully convicted people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we freed 12 innocent people mm-hmm. so far. Mm-hmm. Recently, most recently, Andre Brown. Um, a week and a half, a little bit less than a week and a half ago, after 22 years, we also do policy changes aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. So we've helped pass three laws, an additional six, with the coalition group. It could happen to you, which uh, I'm part of. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an attorney, and I started the organization because I spent 16 years wrongfully incarcerated myself, yes, prior to DNA proving my innocence. Um, so my life is dedicated to that. So I came to the event here today uh, because my colleague, uh, H. Bosch Jr., who has um, the radio show, you know, Triple E's, uh, he is a colleague from the It Could Happen to You Coalition, and he told me about this, and uh, he's definitely Albany-based. And pretty much whatever he tells me is uh, worthwhile charitable events going on in the Albany area I come to as long as I um, don't have a non-movable conflict. So we've been doing advocacy work throughout the country for about six years speaking and regularly going to the New York State Legislature and lobbying for changes including some of the laws we passed. Uh, So in brief, uh, I like to give back. God has blessed me to be doing well, and I brought a couple of gifts here to the function for, and it's just part of me uh, giving back to people in a less fortunate position, and we look forward to participating in this event uh, next year and many more years to come and other similar mission uh, items. 
uh, the foundation's fundraising has gone better. And so we're able to give back in this way here. And, you know, we did something on Thanksgiving and we'll be more active up in the Albany area. I mean, I semi-frequently come up to Albany because of the presence of the New York State Legislature. And so it's only natural that I would want to do some good up here in uh, Albany. So your, so your office is operated out of what city? Uh, it, the office is located in the Bronx, in New York, in New York City, but uh, you know, obviously the legislature is here in Albany, so we do most of the policy work is Albany uh, centered. It affects the whole state, but the legislature is here, so we meet in person. And the geographical area we take wrongful conviction cases that is not limited to the city. So we actually we have a uh, we have a Troy case and we have um, a case up in Buffalo and cases throughout New York State. Right now, there's 12 cases that we're working on um, freeing wrongfully convicted people. Mm -hmm. How how is a bid this per se? You know, are you getting a lot of people calling you? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people have contacted the foundation. In fact, we are. Uh, we're actually not taking new applications because we, we, we're trying to dig ourselves out of uh, approximately 300 raw applications where people are just asking us for help. And that's aside from our 12 active cases and we have another seven that are approved but are, ju are just waiting. So we're trying to dig ourselves out and at that point we will we'll open up the queue again and we'll allow, uh, we'll take new uh, applications. But people are even asking just simply to get on the waiting list for uh, whenever we do open up. So, you know, wrongful conviction is a very serious issue. And I regret to say that New York is third in the country in terms of the total number of exonerations that have happened. Mm -hmm. So it is a it is a really big problem. It happens much more frequently uh, than what most of us realize. But beyond wrongful conviction being devastating for the individual and their family, uh, in a larger sense, it's a public safety issue because every time the actual perpetrator, every time the actual, every time an innocent person is convicted, the actual perpetrator stays uh, free and they can strike again. And that actually happened in my case. So the actual perpetrator killed a second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. So what happened to me wasn't just devastating to me, but it also ultimately cost another person her life. And you know, her children are obviously dramatically impacted by the murder of. Um, their mother. So what do you think is the cause of these uh, wrongful convictions? Wrongful conviction yeah, absolutely. Prosecutorial misconduct is a big factor. But another another big factor is uh, coerced false confessions. You know, uh, many people think that an innocent person would never confess, but actually it's caused wrongful convictions in 29% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. I would like to share that there are three bills right now in the Albany legislature that have been addressed, that have been uh, introduced or uh, that are intended to prevent wrongful convictions. So one of them is the Youth Interrogation Act. So that is a bill that's been introduced. And what it would do is that it would mandate that 16 and 17 year olds and kids younger than that would have to speak to an attorney to explain their rights before they waive their rights and speak to the police recognizing that kids at that age often don't understand their rights mm -hmm. that's what happened to me actually at my false confession which caused my wrongful conviction happened when i was 16. There is a police deception bill which has been introduced which would ban the police from lying to suspects in the course of uh, interrogating them, recognizing that 
police deception interrogations is inherently coercive. And lastly, when New York State mandated that the police record custodial interrogations back in 2017, they unfortunately made exceptions for homicide, sex offenses, and drug cases. And those are the cases where we need it the most. So we would like to uh, get rid of those exceptions, and so a bill is going to be introduced on that um, momentarily. I just helped to write the justification portion of the bill, and so uh, we're going to get a bill number any day on that. So what's been the uh, reaction of the uh, legislators? Yeah, they're, yeah they're, I'm, I'm welcome. Um, well, first of all, I've been doing advocacy since 2006, so they're well aware of me and my advocacy work. I have been, I, I have been welcomed uh, by them, and they seem open to the legislation that I'm championing. They recognize that false confessions do do happen, and that particularly vulnerable populations are youth and people with mental health issues. So, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to get most, if not all, of those bills passed uh, this year. I do want to mention that. A big problem in terms of trying to correct wrongful convictions is that the state does not provide attorneys for indigent defendants uh, if you're going to bring a post-conviction motion. And so there's a bill that would do that uh, called the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act. So I'm hoping that that will get, I'm hoping that that will get uh, passed as well. So there's some really good legislation out there, and myself, um, H. Bosch Jr., who's um, you know playing Santa Claus at today's event, and many of our other colleagues throughout the state, we're, we're pushing really hard to get these bills passed because, look, we don't want innocent people to be falsely accused. We don't want innocent people to be wrongfully convicted. Have there been any pushback from law enforcement? Yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's definitely pushback from law enforcement. Uh, so the the police think that. If the, that uh, if these bills are passed, that they, they won't be able to do their job. But we really don't look at it like that. Uh, in states where they, they have these bills enacted, um, th there's, there is not a reduction in the number of crimes that police are able to solve. Uh, I think also that you know, it's not necessary to that people, in order for the justice system to work, then people have to not understand their rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's pushback from from law enforcement uh, on that. Uh, in jurisdictions where they don't, where um, bills were passed that mandated recording interrogations, there was initially a lot of pushback from uh, law enforcement. But once it's passed and they have to do it, they love it. Then they don't want to go back because they realize that look, this thing isn't simply helping uh, suspects, but this this helps them because it makes for it makes for better evidence. And it also protects honest cops from false allegations of coercion, mm -hmm. so they never want to go. They never want to go back. Uh, the other pushback, of course, is from the District Attorneys Association of New York, but they always seem to want to oppose uh, justice reform issues. Mm -hmm. But again, this has nothing to do with being soft on crime, wanting criminals to get away with it. This has to do with accuracy and justice and preventing wrongful conviction. Now, I know you say you do this right here, mm -hmm. uh, but is, are there other states where people have organizations that do some? some yes. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in this state, so there are other organizations in New York. There's the Innocence Project uh, that does this kind of work. There's the Exoneration Initiative uh, in nearby New Jersey. There is Centurion Ministries. Uh, and there's a lot of innocence organizations throughout the country that are doing this type of work. And nearly all the organizations have the two-pronged approach. 
let's free people that are already wrongfully imprisoned, and then let's prevent future wrongful convictions through doing policy work aimed at preventing wrongful convictions. So we're kind of following along um, with uh, their uh, model in, uh, in terms of having that approach. Now, you remember the Central Park? I do remember the Central Park Five, now known as the Exonerated Five. Yeah, in fact, I know I know a lot of them personally. I've met them. Uh, when you move in the, when you move in the same circles, you eventually run into everybody. But yeah, the Central Park Five, four out of the five, were coerced into false confessions. So that's an example of uh, false confession leading to wrongful conviction. It certainly illustrates their case. Certainly illustrates the need for the Youth Interrogation Act. So all of them. All of them were very young when confessions were, for, were forced out of them, and certainly they never understood their rights. Mm -hmm. What 14, 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old understands, a lot of adults don't understand their rights. Right. And I know that uh, when a person is proven not, not guilty, you know, mm -hmm. from the wrong conviction, uh, there is a reparation for their punishment? There is. There is, there is compensation, yes. Right. But, compensation. The, yeah, but the, the issue with compensation is that the issue of compensation is that between the point of release until uh, when someone's compensated, there's no, there's no, there's there's nothing between point A and point B. So when I was exonerated, it was a difficult first five years of my freedom before uh, I was compensated. So what I'm saying is that there should be reintegrative assistance. There should be housing, cost of living, mental health care, doctor and dental job training, job placement, classes on technology, access to public transportation. Okay. And Jeffrey, I don't want to give you no more business, but if someone wants to uh, get in touch with you, you know, just to get some ideas, some information. They can email me through the website. The website is www.deskovic.org, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org, and there's a web form there where they can email me through there. And we're also on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and, you know, those uh, platforms have uh, email function to them. All right, and Jeffrey, I want to you know thank you for this interview and uh, thank you for bringing gift to the uh, Christmas party here today. Wow, you just brought a big <laughs> smile to my face. The same way I'm hoping to bring a smile to a few kids' uh, face. And uh, thank you for a very informative interview. You asked some really really great questions, and I could see you were into the issue. So I appreciate that. And hey, for every, for you and everyone else out there. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Thanks, Jeff. Being interviewed was Jerry Deskovic, who has previously been on the program, interviewed by H. Bosch Jr. for the Triple E's. You can find that at our website. And Willie Terry, that was the last segment from his uh, coverage from the Toys for Tots Toy Pickup Day. You can find all of the previous interviews on our website, mediasanctuary.org. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And special thanks to all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to this episode are Moses Nagel, Willie Terry, Marsha Lazarus, and Amy Halloran. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. 
Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.